0: The following message was recorded at Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information can be found online at Bethlehem.Church. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, we live and breathe and have our being in you this morning. And you are the one who holds us. So now, through the power of your Holy Spirit, enliven our hearts and open our eyes, open our hearts so that we would receive your word as we were designed to receive it as truth and conform us, O oh God, increasingly into your image, we pray in Christ's name, amen. As we near the end of Peter's letter, let me just remind us again what Peter has been trying to do first peter five twelve says i have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of god stand firm in it peter has written a letter of exhortation and of encouragement and the two main themes that peter has used and gone back to again and again is that of suffering and of identity The first is identity, where he said, you are elect exiles. This is who you are in God. You're born again. You have an inheritance. You're God's chosen people. Don't forget who you are, especially as you are being maligned and slandered and called all sorts of names and suffering and persecution. Don't forget your identity in Christ. That's foundational to your life as a believer. The second theme that he's looked at has been that of submission and suffering. This is what God calls you to right now and how you're to live. Submit to these various authorities. Receive suffering as though it's from God because you're under God's will. Receive that suffering. Suffering is not punishment. It doesn't mean you're forgotten or abandoned. Instead, it's a mark of authenticity. It's a stamp of certification that your faith is real. And so Peter's anticipating this question. Okay, if our identity is in Christ and we're supposed to suffer in this life, kind of what do we do? Like, what's our attitude or disposition to be like until Christ returns? How should we go about enduring And Peter's main point this morning is that we are to be humble and alert, casting our anxieties upon the Lord under his mighty hand. Two main things he's calling us to, humility and watchfulness or vigilance. And that's what he wants us to know this morning. And there's three sections actually in this passage that we'll walk through one by one. A call to submit In the first half of verse 5, a call to be humble in 5 through 7, and then a call to be alert in verses 8 and 9. So look with me at the first half of verse 5. He says, likewise, you who are younger be subject to the elders. What Peter's been doing here is he's trying to give this flow of thought. It goes all the way back to chapter 4, verse 19, where he says, entrust your soul to a faithful creator. And then he seems to totally switch topics in talking about elders in chapter 5. But I don't think he's doing that haphazardly. When he gives that prescription, entrust your soul to a faithful creator, we might be saying, how do we do that? And he says, look at the means that God has given you. He's given you shepherds. So Peter goes to exhort the shepherds that are among them to do that work of care and of oversight well. And then, how are we then to respond to that shepherding care? Well, this is what we get now in the beginning of verse 5. Likewise, you who are younger, you're to be subject to the elders. That uh, word, be subject, is the same one that's been used throughout this letter, All the believers are to be subject to all their governing authorities. Slaves are to be subject to their masters. Wives, subject to their husbands. And now those who are younger to be subject to the shepherding care of the elders. Why does Peter single out those who are younger? Does he mean older people, you can do whatever you want? It's really just those younger people that need shepherding and eldering. Well, I don't think so. The key question is, what does Peter mean or have in mind when he says those of you who are younger? And it's important to clarify that in the previous passage, when Peter talked about elders, he wasn't just talking about those who are older in age, because there he was inferring that they had oversight, they had authority. So he's referring to the office of an elder. You're to exercise oversight, not domineering those in your charge, which means they've been entrusted to you, not just any older person, but those who are elders in the church, So what does Peter have in mind when he says those who are younger? I think there's three options. The first, it could refer to the entire church. So elders and then everybody else, and he just uses that phrase, younger. Or it could be a metaphorical use of younger, speaking to those who are new converts. That's the second option. Or the third option, it could be speaking of those who are literally younger in age. Now, option one, referring to the entire church, seems unlikely because in the exact next sentence, he says, clothe yourselves, all of you which means he seems to be broadening out his address from the specific group to the entire church. S- option two, in speaking of new converts, seems unlikely because the phrase, the, the word younger, is never used to refer to new converts, and there's no other evidence that would point that Peter has kind of this group in mind. I think the most likely option is that Peter is specifically calling out those who are younger in age. And in this context, it would have been those who are younger than 40 or 50 years old. Evidence for this would be a passage like Titus 2.6, where Paul specifically calls out a specific group. He says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Why would Paul call out a specific demographic from within the church? It's because that's the demographic that would most likely need that specific instruction to be self-controlled. So Peter is calling for those who are younger to submit to the elders because Peter knows what we know about younger people that were headstrong, independent, likely to resist authority. Anyone have a teenager? You probably can testify to that. Or anyone ever been a teenager? You can probably testify to that. In your younger years, you were more resistant to authority. I put myself in that same category. But Peter is reminding those who are younger, specifically within the church, that God-given shepherding care is for your good. It's for your good. While you may be resistant to it, God has designed it so that you would endure and persevere. So on this Covenant Affirmation Sunday, where we just welcomed new members this morning, we're encouraged because I saw a number of younger people who are covenanting together with us this morning to be part of the church, to say that I need that accountability, and I need that shepherding care of this church, and I'm committed to providing that for others as well. And so this morning, I want to exhort and encourage those who are younger among us, perhaps young men and women who believe, well, I, I don't live with my parents anymore, I don't need their oversight, and I don't need anyone else's oversight, to re-examine this reality. You're, you're to be part of the church so that you can receive the shepherding care of this body. So I want to exhort our young people, maybe college students, or maybe young adults, or maybe others in this body, to pursue church membership as one of the ways that you entrust your soul to your faithful creator because it's your faithful creator who's given you, Lord willing, faithful shepherds who shepherd over your soul willingly, not under compulsion, eagerly, not domineering, but as an example. Now, that doesn't mean those who are younger need to submit, but nobody else does, or all the older folks can do whatever they want. Peter's point is that though, if those who are most likely to be self-reliant or headstrong are to submit, how much more are all of us to submit and to be subject to the shepherding care of the leadership of the local church? And you might be immediately thinking, that's a hard ask. Like, Stephen, you're only 38 years old, and and I've lived much longer than you. I'm 50 or 60 or 70 or 80, and you want me to submit to your care and to the care of the other elders? That's going to require humility, and that's precisely Peter's point because the next section he gets to humility and how it's so necessary within the church. So look with me at the second half of verse 5. He says, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. For God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. We see either the word humility or humble repeated three different times, and, you know, God opposes the proud. The opposite of humility is highlighted there as well. Peter is emphasizing an attitude and disposition of humility. So we want to ask five questions about humility. What is humility? Who is to pursue humility? Where is humility to be directed? Why should we pursue humility? And then how are we to pursue humility? So let's look at the first. What is humility? Peter doesn't give us a definition, but he tells us with the words, clothe yourselves with it like putting on a coat. It's an attitude or a state of mind that we're to adopt and to think like. This is where we find help from a passage like Philippians 2, 3, and 4, probably the most famous passage on humility. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. So humility is the opposite of selfish ambition, And it's where you're thinking of others as greater than you, or putting their interests before your own interests. But Philippians actually goes on. He says, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of servant, being born in the likeness of men. So this call to humility is a call to Christ-likeness. To be humble is to be more like Jesus. And so to resist humility is to resist becoming more like Jesus. And so in this context of where he's just talked about elders, providing shepherding oversight and care, I know that there are some who say, I don't know if I trust the elders. Or I don't know if I agree with everything. And, and we can talk about those things, but to resist the shepherding care that's been given by God for the local church, to resist that is to not pursue Christ likeness. Because to pursue Christ's likeness is to be humble. And to be humble is to receive God's shepherding care through normal, everyday individuals as part of his plan for good. Now, the second question, who is to pursue humility? Verse 5 says, all of you are to be humble, young and old, elders and non-elders. Everyone within the church is to pursue humility. Some of the strongest words in scripture are reserved for those who are arrogant. Proverbs 16:5. Everyone who is arrogant in heart is an abomination to the Lord. Be assured, he will not go unpunished. Question 3. Where is humility to be directed? It says, we're to be humble towards one another from within the church. Peter's already exhorted believers to similar types of things. He said, keep loving one another earnestly. Why? Because within this body, we're going to sin against each other. It's a, it's a gathering of sinners. And as we face maligning and slander and persecution, th- things are going to get tense and stressful. And we're going to lash out at each other. And so he says, love one another. And so we're to be humble towards one another. It's like the lubricating oil in the engine of the body of Christ. You can probably just think about this for a moment. In the last six months or so, have you had conversations with fellow believers where you're frustrated at them? Why aren't you wearing a mask? Or why do I have to wear one? Why are you making such a big deal out of it? Or, Why are they posting those things on social media about this or that or the other? I can't believe you're voting that way or this way. Why would you support that candidate? Don't you know their background? And I think the call for us this morning is that we need a healthy dose of humility so that it becomes the oil, so that it cuts down on the friction within the body of Christ, so that we love and care for one another. This is part of our call as his people. We probably know a few relationships that could use a little bit more humility on all of our parts. Not only we are to be humble towards one another, but we're actually called in verse 6 to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why would Peter call for humility towards God? I think it's because of this. It would be really natural to bristle and to chafe under God's hand. Because what he's said again and again is that suffering is according to God's will. Which means the hardship and the trials and the anxieties that you're feeling right now, they're not apart from God's will. They're designed by him to conform you into his image, to make you more like Jesus, to loosen your grip on this world. And we think, wait a minute. Suffering is from God's hand. And we might, in that moment, want to question God. How dare you? Tell me why you're doing this. Why me? Don't you care? And Peter is calling for humility, to be able to receive the hard things from the hand of the Lord, knowing that every good and perfect gift, even suffering and trials at times, is given by God for our good. Joni Erickson Tata, a number of you know this woman, this uh, paradigm of faith, uh, was paralyzed as a quadriplegic since, the age, since age 17. She's now 70, and she's battled breast cancer recently as well. And she says this about God's purposes and suffering. She says, Rather than try to frantically escape the pain, I relearned the timeless lesson of allowing my suffering to push me deeper. Into the arms of Jesus. I like to think of my pain as a sheepdog that keeps snapping at my heels to drive me down the road to Calvary, where otherwise I would not be naturally inclined to go. So, the humble attitude and disposition of believers is to see the things that we receive from God's hand as gentle tools to conform us into his image so that we would experience greater intimacy with him, so that we wouldn't bristle or chafe or buck against his design and what he's doing in our lives. Humility is required to receive both the good and the bad and the hard things as from God's mighty hand, like Job in the book of Job, who is not unfamiliar with suffering, who says, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. But what? Blessed be the name of the Lord. Humility accepts what we receive from the hand of God. Question four, why should we pursue humility? Verse five gives us the reason. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. This is a quote from Proverbs 3:34. And it's something that we've seen at least the theme again and again. God turns his face away or cuts off his ear from the prayers of those who are disobedient. And here, God opposes the proud. Self-reliance and self-sufficiency cuts us off from God. How does it do that? Cuz we think Well, I don't need other people. I don't really need to come to church. I don't need to catch a live stream. I don't need to read my Bible. I don't need prayer. I don't need community. I don't need church membership. And yet, when we have that self-reliant, independent attitude, it cuts us off from God's grace that he wants to minister to us through the body of Christ and through the preaching, through the prayers and through the worship of his people and through community and through the shepherding oversight of elders. Humility is recognizing that we are desperately needy for God. Pride is like hitting the shutoff valve of God's grace so that it's stopped. And yet humility is cranking it back open so that his grace flows right into our lives. And I hope what these last six months have taught us, as we've seen unprecedented things and anxiety that has reached new heights, that we are desperately in need of a Savior. I can't imagine trying to live through these last six to ten months without the hope of the gospel, without the word to turn to, without prayer to see God's hand at work. And so we're called to be humble before the Lord. Pride is what keeps us from receiving God's grace. And pride, in fact, is actually what kept the Pharisees from seeing Christ in all his glory so that they could even be saved. So if you're feeling prideful this morning, or if you are prideful this morning, or if you're bristling at even the words that I speak this morning, I would call you to examine yourself this morning and exhort you to pursue humility before the Lord Jesus Christ. God sees And God will, at the right time, exalt all those who embrace humility. So, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. If that wasn't reason enough, he says, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that God, at the proper time, may exalt you. This is addressing one of the fears that we have. If I humble myself, if I put others' interests before my own interests, what if no one ever meets my interests, my needs, What if I'm humble and so I don't get the praise or accolades that I'm longing for and desiring? And God says, oh, you'll get it. At the proper time, I will exalt all those who are mine. You don't have to worry that you're not going to get what's fair in this life. You will get more than you ever deserved in the life to come from the hand of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, question five. How are we to pursue humility? We see in verse 7, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. So the way believers humble themselves under God's mighty hand is by casting all their anxieties on God. So how does this work? To hold on to anxiety is prideful. Now you might wonder, really, being anxious is prideful? It doesn't feel like pride. It feels like brokenness. Well, I think it's understood this way. When we hold on to our anxieties and we refuse to give them to God in prayer, we're saying, God, I know better than you. I got this. I'm not gonna give it over to you. If you want something done right, you gotta do it yourself. And so I'm gonna carry these anxieties. Anxieties over my wayward children. Anxieties over my employment. Anxieties over my health. Anxieties for the future. Anxieties, anxieties, anxieties. I'm gonna hold on to them Because God, I I don't trust you with them. That's what we're functionally saying when we refuse to hand over our anxieties to the Lord. This is the opposite of faith. Thinking we know better than God is the epitome of pride. So a humble attitude and disposition is one that says, Lord, I'm feeling anxious about this. I don't know why. Lord, I just lay that at your feet. I just give that to you, Lord. I'm feeling anxious about my job feeling anxious about my marriage. I'm feeling anxious about my children, feeling anxious about my health. I'm really scared of this virus. I'm really scared about this nation and and all the polarization. Lord, I'm just going to hand those things over to you. And the reason we can is because he cares for us. What a profound and simple truth. But let me just camp out on casting our anxieties on him just a little bit more. One commentator put it this way, affliction either drives one into the arms of God or severs one from God. Casting our anxieties is likely allusion to Psalm fifty-five twenty-two, where it says, cast your burden on the Lord and he will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. And the image there is not like in fishing where you cast your line out only to see if anything bites and then reel it back in and then bring it home. But the idea is taking a heavy load that's been loaded on the yoke on a beast of burden, like a donkey, taking that off, casting it off and placing it on the strong shoulders of another. And in this case, we're being told, take that backpack full of rocks and anxieties and worries that you have for tomorrow And give them over to the Lord because tomorrow has enough of its own worries. Today has enough of its own worries that you don't have to worry about tomorrow. We can do this because he cares for us. This morning, whatever anxieties we're facing, unemployment, cancer, uncertain diagnoses, maligning, suffering, persecution, pain, wayward children, dying parents, trauma, a broken marriage, strained relationships, and a million other anxieties you need to hear that God cares for you. He says, come to me, all you who are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's what he wants to give us. Because he cares for us, that he would take our anxieties and that we would be able to rest in him. But the only way we can rest is if we're humble before the Lord, not holding on to these anxieties, but relinquishing them rightly before the Lord. And this would have been really hard for Peter's readers because maligning, suffering, persecution, things look like they're getting worse. They might be ready to build their underground bunker. And he says, no, 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 just hand over these anxieties to the Lord. So this call to humility is a call to trust and faith. Humility allows us to receive the shepherding care of those that God has designed for us. It allows us to have frictionless relationships within the body of Christ, and it allows us to see that we're under God's mighty hand, ridding ourselves of the paralysis of anxiety. Now, look with me at verses 8 and 9. Because not only is the Christian life of resting, of humility, resting in the arms of Jesus, but there's this call to be fighting. Verses 8 and 9. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Peter closes with, Two exhortations that we've seen before already. Sober-minded and watchful. Be vigilant. We've seen sober-minded in chapter 1, verse 13, in chapter 4, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 7. We're to have this spiritual sobriety, alert and sober and watchful. Why? Because we have an enemy that is on the prowl that seeks to devour his prey. And that enemy is the devil, Satan is not a cute golden doodle puppy, but he's a roaring lion that wants to eat you for lunch. And so how are we to respond? He says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood all around the world. I want you to notice three things here, and we'll do the third one first. Third one is that we can be encouraged by the truth that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. So what we're experiencing is not unusual. We're not being singled out and we're not alone. As we saw two weeks ago, there are Christians in Afghanistan and North Korea and China and a number of other places who are experiencing much greater persecution and suffering. And that should help us to take heart because we're not alone. We're in it together. And we're all fighting for the same thing, perseverance and endurance in Christ. This is the normal pathway of faith for Christians. All those who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now, the second thing, the second and third thing we're to notice is that we can resist this enemy and that we're to be firm in our faith. How do these two things relate? How do we resist this roaring lion and how does our faith factor in? This second phrase, firm in your faith, suggests that our faith is what Satan wants to devour. He wants to devour his enemies, and we're to be firm in our faith. And so how does Satan devour a believer's faith? The devil, which is the word that's used here, also means slanderer or accuser, which means that Satan mainly brings accusations against God's people. So if you think about the whole book of 1 Peter, we're experiencing maligning. So even from our enemies here on earth, we're getting accusations and slander. And then Satan brings in the fiery dart, and he says, see, it's because you're on the wrong side of history. It's because God doesn't love you, because you've fallen out of God's good will. Those are the accusations and lies that Satan is bringing against God's people. He doesn't care. Even if he cared, he's powerless to help you. That's what he wants us to believe. And if we believe that, we'll have our faith devoured. But these lies are from the very pit of hell. And so how do we resist him? We do not believe in the lies of Satan. And we believe in God's word instead. That's why Peter Said, you've been born again by the imperishable seed, which is the living and abiding word of God. And if you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good, come back to this pure spiritual milk and keep drinking it because that's going to prevent you from getting the poison of Satan into your bloodstream. He's called to mind again and again who we are. You're God's beloved. We are elect exiles. You're born again to a living hope. You have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The spirit of glory and of God, the Holy Spirit himself, now rests upon you like it was resting on the Lord Jesus Christ. You've been ransomed, not with silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ. You're a living stone being built up into God's spiritual house right now. You're not part of Satan and his kingdom. You're being built into the glorious temple of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's how we resist Satan, by believing and cleaving to God's promises that he's given us. And we say, when Satan brings those accusations, you're too far gone, you've sinned again. He doesn't care. See that maligning that you're getting at your workplace? It's because God doesn't love you. And we say, no, 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 I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. In the book of James, in chapter 4, 7 and 8, he tells us very similarly. He says, submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. So what are we supposed to do? Resist the devil. And when we resist the devil, by drawing near to God, what happens to Satan? He flees from us. So are Peter's readers experiencing fiery trials? Yes. Are we going to experience fiery trials, persecution, and suffering? Yes. But does that mean those sufferings fundamentally change our identity as God's people? No, a million times no. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. Not even the hot steaming jaws of Satan himself. So I really want the seriousness of this text to land on us, but not to paralyze us. So what do I I mean by that? Is Satan deadly? Yes. He can devour our faith if we succumb to his lies and accusations. But should we fear him? No. Like the holy woman of old, they did not fear anything that is frightening. So yes, he's frightening, and no, we don't fear him. So how should we think about him? Satan is like a lion at the zoo. If we foolishly climb past the barbed wire and the fencing and the little ravine, and we go into his den, he's going to devour us. But if we stay behind the barrier, or we look at the lion through the two-thick-inch plexiglass barrier that's bulletproof, we, we, we do not stand in fear of the evil one because his bark is worse than his bite. By faith, looking to Jesus, cleaving to the promises of God, we have nothing to fear in Satan. We are safe from his jaws if we continually entrust our souls to our faithful creator. So there's this resting of the faith and there's fighting of the faith. And that's the tension that we have in this Christian life. That this morning, if you're carrying burdens and anxieties, oh, you can lay them at the foot of Jesus. Cast them off of your shoulders and leave them at the foot of the cross because he cares for you. He really cares for you. He wants you to rest in him. And as we do that, we're putting our hope and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ so that we will resist Satan and his lies and accusations that he brings against us. So stay ready, be alert, be vigilant, but sleep soundly because Jesus is on our side. I want to highlight one more thing that I didn't talk about. Under the mighty hand of God. We're to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. Why does he use that phrase? Why doesn't he just say, humble yourself before the Lord? Under the mighty hand of God is to bring us, transport us all the way back to the Exodus. It's the same phrase that's used again and again in the Exodus. Exodus 3.19, 32.11, Deuteronomy 5.15, that God delivered Israel from Egypt and from the hand of Pharaoh with his mighty hand. And so what's that supposed to signify? It's to signify God's power and his protection. God's power and his protection. God's hand was heavy against Pharaoh. He whipped him around like a rag doll. He destroyed the nation of Egypt as he brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt. And yet at the same time, God protected his children from plagues from the Red Sea closing in, from starvation in the desert. It signifies God's power and his powerful protection of his people. And so we have the strong and mighty hand of God. When we humble ourselves before the Lord, we do so under the mighty hand of God, not just of power, that we have to fear, but of his protection as well, that all those who are in his hand will not be snatched out of his hand. So it's not mainly about just stay alert, but rest knowing that you are in his hand and you're in his heart because he cares for you. One last thing. We're gonna close now singing the song, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. And verse three has these lyrics. The prince of darkness grim. We tremble not for him. His rage we can endure. For lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. What's that one little word? Any guesses? No one guessed. Eight o'clock guessed. They said Jesus. That's what I thought. I asked Dan. That's what he thought. That's what my wife thought. Martin Luther said the word is liar, that when Satan brings his accusations, we say you're a liar. You've been a liar from the very beginning, and those are lies, and I'm not believing them because I'm trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we expose Satan for who he is, a liar that never tells the truth, he says nothing true about us. But what does Jesus do? He says everything true about us. You are my beloved, you are my children. You are destined for glorification with me. There's a salvation ready to be revealed in that last day. And so we call Satan what he is. You're a stinking liar. We're not going to believe you, and we're going to cleave to the Lord Jesus Christ, who will bring us all the way home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are Speak only truthful words. And so we pray that every truthful word this morning would sink deep into our hearts so that we would know you, love you, cleave to you, endure and persevere, and that you would be our only hope in this life and in the next. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Bethlehem Baptist Church in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others